So I'm going to begin by reading uh, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This last verse 18 is our text today. In this last verse, John draws to a climax his introduction to the rest of the gospel narrative. He ends where he begins. In the prologue, John uses a literary device found in the Old Testament. More commonly, in, perhaps, in the Old Testament, it's called an inclusio. Verse 1 and verse 18 are bookends of the prologue, containing, if you compare them and manipulate them a little bit, you see some of the same themes that will uh, be found in the rest of the book. The device is used to highlight, to emphasize, and alert us to significant themes. The material in the prologue and the emphasis of verse 1 and 18 will be developed in the rest of the gospel. If you take a look at your bulletin, if you have it, there's an insert, and I've borrowed from uh, notes by D.A. Carson, a little parallel outline that demonstrates uh, what we find in the first 18 verses, we find later developed in the rest of the gospel or in the body of the gospel. In verses 1 and 2, the preexistence of the Logos or Son. And we're not going to look at all of these other verses, but I, you can do this this evening. It's kind of a rehearsal also of what we've covered over the last six sermons. Verse 4, in him was life. And then the corresponding verse. In verse 4 again, life is light. Verse 5, light rejected by darkness. 
Again, in verse 5, yet it did not, it was not quenched by it. Verse 9, light coming into the world. The Christ, the living God, coming into the world. In verse 11, Christ not received by his own. Verse 13, being born to God and not of flesh. 14, seeing his glory. Verse 14 and 18, the only, the one and only Son. In verse 17, truth in Jesus Christ. And in verse 18, no one has seen God except the one who comes from God's side. Obviously, Carson is using a different translation here. I'm taking time to present this as a view of where we have been and where the rest of the gospel is going and to draw our attention this morning to a pertinent hermeneutic or point of interpretation for the rest of this text. To add credibility to my observation, I want you to listen to the introduction of two of the other gospels. First, Matthew. <clears throat> Verse 1 reads, it begins, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. As students of the word, I'm sure that you would agree that the focus and the center of the gospel of Matthew is not David or Abraham, but the center and the focus is upon he who brings redemption into the world. Next in Mark, we read the beginning of the gospel in my parenthesis, or good news, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We could stop here, and again, it would be obvious that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is at the center of importance of this gospel. But Mark continues with a quote from the Old Testament concerning not Christ, but a forerunner, or the forerunner of Christ. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. I don't know if I'm doing it well, but I'm trying to emphasize the text or parts of the text that deal with Christ. There are many characters that fill up, ordinary people like you and I, who fill up the text of the scriptures but I would suggest to you that it's not primarily about them, but it's about the Christ. Luke, as you know, starts by explaining to Theodophilus the source and reason for the narrative he's compiled. And his reason is that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. I would suggest that this was also the reason for the compilation of Matthew, Mark, and John. We've said already that as the, as time went along and people who had been eyewitnesses to the crucifixion for the 500 who had seen Christ, they were beginning to die out. And there were questions arising as to the truth and the validity and the veracity of the testimony that was left. And so these gospel writers, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, have preserved God's word for us. So after giving the reason, Luke, for after giving the reason, uh, for the compilation, continues by introducing the parents of John. John's, John's already been mentioned. He's mentioned in John's gospel. But we're talking about John the Baptist here. Uh, in Luke, he mentions his supernatural birth. It's contained, or it comes, by a heavenly 
messenger. Luke 1, 15 through 17 reads, For he, concerning John, for he will be great before the Lord, and he will not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Remember back we just read in the prologue that John comes as a witness that people might believe in the Christ through his message and through his preaching. He was preparing a people for the Lord. Continuing, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them, before him, in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Then it continues in Luke, in the first chapter, he presents angels, an angel who visits Mary and makes the promise to her of a savior. And again, we read, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Who is at the center of the gospel narratives is particular and who is at the center of the Bible is the same focus in a very general way. The scriptures and the gospels are either, we get this way of interpretation, or way of looking, the lens through which we look and read scripture. It's either theocentric, Christocentric, a combination of the two, or it's anthropocentric. It is primarily the revelation of the Trinity and its purposes or its primary or it is primarily about man and his plight. Let me say that again, because I read it poorly. It is primarily the revelation of the Trinity and its purposes, or it is primarily about man and his plight. Let me assure you that the first chapters of Genesis do not begin with man, but with God the creator, the blesser, the sustainer, the Lord and the redeemer of man. And if I come this morning desire, if, and if I've come this morning to hear anything or something that will help me with my problems, then I see God as my servant, as my fixer, as my handyman. I have broken fences in my heart and life that need to be mended. I can offer to you two examples of anthropocentric hermeneutic. One goes back or, or putting man at the center, and I've observed this, and I've probably, well, I know I've taught it, being coming from a dispensational church. The first is the election of Israel. Throughout the history of this nation, it was racked with the de-godding of God. Do you understand what I mean by that term? That's a Carson term. He's got a book written, The De-Godding of God. It's anytime we supplant with an idea or a thought or a desire or a purpose the rightful place of God as Lord and King and Master in our lives with anything else. And usually it's with ourselves. <clears throat> this de of God and pointing to and looking to election 
necessitated Moses having to explain to the people, God did not choose you because you were the greatest among the nations, but he chose you to demonstrate his faithfulness. The second example is the interpretation of the Song of Songs, and I'm sure we, some of us have discussed this and there are a variety of interpretations out there. You'll know where I come down as I finish here. Historically, primary, the primary interpretation saw it concerning God and Israel or later perhaps Christ and the church. I'm convinced it's used, uh, it's, I'm convinced its use is through the joys of marital intimacy perhaps the greatest of all human experiences, to emphasize us to the, or point us to the joys of spiritual intimacy that the church should expect in its relationship with Christ. Isn't that what Paul points to in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says concerning marriage, this is a mystery, or he says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying this refers to Christ and the church. The modern tendency is to take a poetic book full of imagery and cast it in the light of human sexuality. I'm speaking of the Song of Songs. I've heard the Song of Songs described in, in my commentaries by evangelical writers as a sexual, um, a Christian sex manual. When it comes to the Old Testament, I defer to the hermeneutic of the greatest of all biblical scholars the greatest of all biblical teachers, and the greatest exegete that ever lived. During one lesson concerning the events of the cross, Luke writes concerning this teacher, and beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So we make a choice this morning. Do we see and read the scriptures with God as a center, Christ as a center, or do we begin with ourselves? There are texts in Scripture that deal with all aspects of life, sin, and human relationships. But from the beginning of Genesis to the culmination of Revelation, the focus, the emphasis, and the center of Scripture should be, must be, about Him. In a minute, I want us to look at, comparatively at John 1 and, 1 and 1 18 and John 20 through 31. But before I do, if you'll look at your notes again or your, the bulletin, I have some different ways that chapter or verse 18 and 1 have been, 18 has been translated. Uh, why translations read differently, uh, these, these major translators? Uh, is it goes beyond the scope of what we're trying to present this morning. But I would let it suffice to, uh, that we should accept that the major, there's no major doctrine that is threatened by these variations. So if we've got that kind of clear in our mind, we don't have to be discouraged or wonder or doubtful just because some words are used rather than others. If you really want to know why, then I've got half a dozen commentaries and you can go there and dig it out. But here we have the ESV, which we're using this morning, says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. 
He has made him known. The King James, and make a mental note, you can see the variations here. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared him. NIV reads, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and in and and is in closest relationship with the Father, is made him known. The NASB reads, No one has seen God at any time. God the only Son who is in the arms of the Father. He has explained him. Then finally the NLT, No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. I, 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 you can see me afterwards, but I don't think there's anything that we would argue against as being true from all of these statements and variations. As we read in all of these English translations that no one or no man has ever seen God, <coughs> it's, that's common. From our previous sermons, we know that when Moses asked to see God's ways, he asked three things. He asked to see God's ways. Then he asked the presence of God to go with him. Then finally, he asked to see God's glory. In chapter 1, John's already said, we have seen his glory, the fullness of his glory. But no man has seen physically seen God. And that's what actually, God's reply to Moses was this. God went as far as he could, and any promise he that he would make all of his goodness, his character, his kindness, his righteousness, his holiness, his long uh, patience, his long everlasting love, all of these things to pass before Moses. And then he would proclaim his name to him. And if you look, I don't think you're going to find Yahweh is presented as the name there. But it's, he's, he's, when he presents his name, he says, I will have mercy upon our, whom I will have mercy. Uh, so we have the name of God here. He says, yet you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Continuing through the rest of this verse, chapter, there are three more phrases uh, that I want to present from the ESV. Then I want to point to the three, then as we continue, I will point to the phrases as they're translated in the other Gospels, but we'll start with the ESV. I'll try to go slowly so that you can follow me here. The first phrase is the only God. The second phrase is who is at the Father's side. And the third phrase is he has made him known. The only God, the only begotten, uh, all of then the Father's side, the Father's arms, and, and we'll look at this a little more closely later. I hope that we'll look at this in a theocentric way. I hope to demonstrate by borrowing from the NLT translation the phrase, the unique one. And of course, this is pointing to Christ. And I don't think there would be any of us who would argue that Christ, the son of the living God, the second person of the Godhead, is unique in all of his ways and everything that he has done. 
Over the months, we have suggested that John 20, 31 could be our theme verse. Uh, it, gives it gives an abbreviated reason for why the whole gospel preceding it, uh, including the prologue, was written. And if you remember, it says, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life through his name. Certainly at the heart of the gospel is God's desire for us to live and live eternally in his presence as his people. A people glorifying and enjoying him forever. Though 2031 is not the last verse in the gospel, it does parallel, I think, and we'll try to demonstrate, John, parallel John 1, 1 and John 1, 18. I would suggest that it forms a type of inclusio uh, of the whole gospel, though it's not at the end of the gospel. Now at a threefold comparison of the uniqueness of the word. And when I say the word, I'm speaking of Christ, the title given to him by John in this gospel. The son is unique in his person. The son is unique, or the word is unique in his position. And the son is unique in his presentation. And I'll try to tell you what I mean by this. The son is unique. In the, the son is unique in his person. This speaks to his rights as creator, Lord, and redeemer. It points to the fact that he is God. In the ESV rendering in chapter, verse 1, and I'm going to go 1, 18, and 20, 31 in each of these uh, presentations. In the ESV rendering, he was with God and he was God. It couldn't be any clearer what he's saying here. In the ESV uh, rendering of 18, it says, no one has seen God, the only God. This is the title. It doesn't use the word here, but it uses the only God. Then in verse 31, it, we, the rendering is the Son of God. So we have, he was God, the only God, the Son of God in those three verses. Now back to our, and you can follow along if you want on your sheets, your uh, handouts. King James, he says he is the only begotten Son. The NIV says the one and only Son who is himself God. The NASB says God the only Son. NLT, and this is where we're getting our paradigm here, he is the unique one who is himself God. There are, it's ironic that, not ironic, but this was written in a time when there were many, many gods. I was going to take a few moments and look, at, look up the, all of the Roman gods and uh, get them confused with the Greek gods for whom they were patterned or followed. But Zeus and uh, Mercury and Venus and uh, I don't know if I'm talking about the Greek or the Roman, but uh, Jupiter, you remember Paul in one case, they were seen as gods. But there's only one God, and he's three persons in one. And the Son, Jesus, the only begotten of the Father, came and took on flesh and dwelt among them. He is unique uh, 
is the very point and purpose of what we're saying here, and I think of what John is saying in a culture where there were many gods. The son is in the, I'm presenting the son in the uniqueness of his position. I was trying to find peas. Uh, some of this may be forced. But position can mean either location or placement. In other words, we might say distress call, the distress call has given the ship's position, its location. Or we might ask the question, what position do you play on the team? Two different ideas from the same word. I would suggest to you that this speaks of a unique relationship. And to miss this is to miss what I'm saying. He was unique in the fact that he was God, but he was unique in the fact that he was with God from all eternity past. And I'm not excluding the Holy Spirit here, but I'm talking about as a, as a man, as we look around us today, there's a uniqueness to him. And the word was with God. It is certainly not speaking of a particular location, but a peculiar relationship or a particular relationship. He was in eternal union with the Father and the Spirit. In John 16, as Jesus is comforting his disciples and he's telling them that he's going to leave, Jesus was located on earth and he told his disciples that he was going to the Father. He warns them that they will be scattered and they will go to their own homes, a different location, a different place. And then he continues and he said, I'll be left alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I'm going to the Father, but the Father is with me. This is not human logic, is it? I don't know how to, this is not the way we think, but it's the reality of Scripture. And Jesus in John 17 desires not a location, but a position of restored glory, the glory that he shared uniquely with the Father in eternity past. <clears throat> Beloved, location-wise, we're in Fuquay Verena. But positionally, we are raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 18, okay, so verse 1, verse 18, who is at the Father's side? So we have, he is with him, he is at the Father's side. We know that at the writing of this gospel, Christ had ascended and is seating at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession. This is more than a location. Right hand speaks of a position of power. He is the king on high, the king high and lifted up, and he's sitting on his throne, waiting till his enemies should be made a footstool for his seat. He is our high priest, ever making intercession, as we said, for us. In 2031, Jesus is the Christ. He is God's anointed. Uh, I would draw your attention as you're walking out uh, to this first table here. Uh, Sister Kate has done a cross-stitch of a Hebrew term. The first part I've got pretty clear in my mind is the Hamashiach. Uh, Hamashiach is the Messiah, the anointed of God. Uh, in the text I'm going to read, it, it uses a verb form. But when we speak of the Messiah, or when Jews speak of the Messiah, Hamashiach, they're talking about the one who was 
anointed. God's anointed. God uh, has the Spirit of the Lord, excuse me, reading from uh, Isaiah 61.1. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. A parallel passage is found in Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I'm suggesting that the, the term Christ here is used for this uh, with. Uh, it, is, it is his uh, appointment to and his anointment for a particular and a unique role. Now looking at the other translations, if you like to get it, it says, uh, King James says, which is, speaking of Christ, the, the begotten, the on, only true God, which is in the bosom of the Father. NIV, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father. The NASB says, who is in the arms of the Father. In the NALT, it reads, is near to the Father's heart. There's a hymn I love, uh, A Mind at Perfect Peace with God, and there's a line in it that simply says that... Uh, so near, so very near to God, no nearer can I be, for in the person of his Son, I am as near as he. And then he talks about the love. And he says, the love wherewith his, he loved the Son, such is his love for me. Lest there be any sentimentality uh, in these words, arms and bosom and uh, closest relationship, <clears throat> Listen to Jesus' own words to his father in chapter 17 and verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you had given me because you loved me before the foundation of the earth. And he goes on to talk about the love wherewith he loves the son, such as his love for us. So we have the uniqueness of his person, we have the uniqueness of his position, and I'm saying here by position his role and per, uh, or his relationship with the Father, and that relationship is one of being sent, one of being uh, coming to do a work to which he agreed to do with the Father. And then finally, his name speaks to the uniqueness of his presentation. In verse 1, it says, in the beginning was the word. Well, the word is the word. It's a, it is the, Jesus is the message. He doesn't just come to deliver a message, but he is the message. Or he is the definition of God. To see Jesus physically was to see and get something and to comprehend something of God the Father in his glory. Because of his person, uh, the uniqueness of his person, he is uniquely qualified to present God to us. Now, we, this morning, week after week, Ben and I try, or 
try to do this. We have, for years, people have come and they've tried to present Christ. But Jesus Christ is unique uh, in his person, in his ability, because no man has seen God but the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, all things, in Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27, he says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, to make him known, to demonstrate to him who Christ is. And of course, we know that the work of the Holy Spirit is in there. You can go to 1 Corinthians 1. And no man knows the mind of another man except that man. And no one can know the, the mind of God except the Spirit of God as he reveals it him to us. This is a supernatural transaction. So in the beginning was the word. This describes Jesus. And then verse 18 is more explicit. And it says, he has made him known. This is the answer to the reality which begins this verse, no one has seen God. Jesus was appointed and anointed to come into the world to make the Father known. And perhaps this is probably the hardest or the most difficult stretch that I make here is when I look at verse, uh, chapter 20 and verse 31. He says, he is the Christ, he is the Son of God, and then he says that all believing might have eternal life through his name. We started in verse 1 with a name of Jesus, the Word. And then we followed all of those others. He's God. He's the Son of God. He's the begotten of the Father. And here it mentions his name again. That we might have life through his name. John, along with Peter, after healing a lame man at the temple, were drugged before a council and asked, By what power or by what name did you this? In other words, they were inquiring by what power and by what authority in whose name are you doing this Peter replies with the two of them he says by the name of Jesus the one that they had crucified the stone that had been rejected by the builders which had become the cornerstone and finally proclaims Peter proclaims there is salvation in no other for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's a uniqueness in his presentation that I can't make, that Ben can't make, that you can't make, only as he has given it to us first. Look again at these uh, comparative translations. The King James says, he has declared him. The NIV says, he has made him known. The NASB says he has explained him. And the NLT, he has revealed God to us in his coming. The word there made him known is the word for which we get the uh, exegesis. You hear this term used. You're going to exegete. You're going to look into the text and see what it says and what it means. Well, Jesus came to tell us who God is and what he means by all he says and does. Let me finish with Christ's own explanation of his work. His person and his position and his work. And it's found in John 17. It's in verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. 
glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's not know about. The word in the, in the biblical terms is a very familiar term. If you go back into the Old Testament, to know is the same word as uh, Adam knew his wife. It, it speaks of an intimate knowledge. It speaks of a relationship. And so what he's saying is, I have made him known, and this is eternal life, <clears throat> that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He continues, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And that was to make him known. Certainly he came to die on the cross, which speaks to the holiness and the justice of God, a God who cannot tolerate and look upon sin. Jesus in his death demonstrated that we need, God needs to be satisfied for the sin that's against him. And Jesus completely and totally propitiated, satisfied God in his work upon the cross. So that's his work. But in doing so, he made it possible that we, sinners blinded by sin, might know him and increase in our knowledge. And then it was in our prayer this morning that the Spirit might, his power might, in our inner man, in our inner being, take the word and impress it upon us so that it becomes a living reality and not just words on a page. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I hope, and it's my prayer, that we have, that we have been accurate this morning in what God is saying in this passage. But in closing, we must ask, why such a proclamation? Why is it here? What is, why is this recorded? And we can go back because the gospel was being lost. But no, but why is that important? The first purpose I would suggest to you this morning, upon hearing this, are two purposes. That in hearing who God is and the uniqueness of his son and what he came to do, his position, his person, and his presentation, that we might fall before him or cry out to him in repentance or cry out to him in thanksgiving, or lift our hearts and our hands in praise for the uniqueness of his person, his position, and his presence. In other words, that we might worship him this morning in spirit and in truth. The second purpose is summarized by Jesus in John 20, 21. He says, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me. So... I'm sending, I'm sending you. Brothers and sisters, he has prepared a table before us in the presence of our enemies. Certainly the overflowing of our cups should be a blessing to our families, to our brothers and sisters here at Grace, and to the neighborhood and the world around us. By God's grace, may it be so. Our gracious God and Father, I thank you for your patience with us. And the privilege of proclaiming your uniqueness. And Father, we pray one more time 
that your spirit would work in our lives that we might go forth and represent and demonstrate the glories that we have heard about you this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.